Detroit Today on 1019 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. In the days since former Vice President Joe Biden was named the winner of the 2020 presidential election, President Trump is still refusing to accept those results. And with the president's refusal to acknowledge defeat comes the reinforcement of widespread denial and a genuine questioning of the legitimacy of one of our country's most sacred institutions, voting. Throughout the nation and in Washington, D.C., pockets of Trump supporters are still standing by their man. And we want to spend some time today talking about what that means from both the perspective of Republican voters and Republican politicians. In most cases, the GOP has gone pretty quiet in their response to the outcome of this election, but not completely. Earlier this week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and a handful of other Republicans backed the president's efforts to contest his loss, despite any real evidence of fraud. So what does that mean? And how does it impact our ability to heal from the divisions that have deepened over the last four years and were on such prominent display during this campaign. Joining me to talk about this is someone who's been thinking a lot about these issues and this moment and has come up with a phrase to describe the state that we're in. Thomas Schaller is a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, an author and a former political columnist for one of my alma maters, the Baltimore Sun. Thomas Schaller, welcome to Detroit Today. Morning, Stephen. Call me Tom, please. Yes, I, I, I certainly will. It's really great to have you here with us. So as I said in the open, you have a phrase that you've thought a lot about that is now making the rounds in some political discussions that I've seen. And that phrase is soft civil war. Can you explain that concept to our listeners who might not really understand what that means? Well, putting aside for a, a moment that there are some, you know, harder elements to the civil war that's happening in the country, essentially between blue America and red America, we have seen militia violence. We mm-hmm. do know that white separatist groups and white supremacist groups are responsible for the vast majority of deaths and violent acts, according to both reports by Homeland Security Department and uh, Chris Ray's FBI, uh, domestic terrorism, the face of domestic terrorism in the United States is largely white and male and under 40. Uh, but putting that part aside, the soft civil war is one fought over institutions and ideals and norms uh, between that red America and blue America. It's also fought out, I believe, in the media landscape in our increasingly siloed and atomized um, media consumption world where Every single American, you and I and every listener here, uh, has their own essential media feed between whomever they follow on Twitter and whomever they are friends with on Facebook, and then whatever they watch in YouTube political channels. Uh, We are no longer all sitting down at the national dinner table at 6 o'clock and then turning on Walter Cronkite at 6.30 and have a shared set of information and facts uh, and data and the government reports. We are all siloed and going down various rabbit holes, sometimes for some people into conspiratorial, you know, 4chan uh, chat rooms and so forth. And because of that, it's it's increasingly difficult for us to have a national shared discourse. And given our state of polarization, we are as polarized, I believe, as we've ever been in American history uh, between those two 
essential side. Mm. It's not the blue and the gray this time like it was in the middle of the 19th century. It's the blue and the red. And so we're fighting over not not with rifles, not with cannon, um, but, you know, with tweets. And we're fighting with uh, battles over political offices and electoral offices. We are about to have a, a soft civil war battle here in Georgia over two Senate seats, for example. And so uh, that's basically what I'm talking about there. And I think this is going to go on for a while until, like the original civil war, one side wins. I think at this point we have seen a clear decline in ticket splitting. We've seen a clear decline in true independence and moderates in the middle. Uh, the vast majority of people make up their minds three, six, even nine months before elections. And so I think it's really a fight to the death now between two very different visions of the future of the country, two very different coalitions demographically and even psychographically in terms of their attitudes toward government, toward governmental power, toward authoritarianism and so forth. And uh, it's a fight to the death, in my, in my view. So, so I, I want to spend some time talking about the institutional side of, of this because we're seeing that play out right now uh, in the last seven days since the presidential election. We've seen the president of the United States, who was standing for re-election, really assail the process by which uh, millions of Americans uh, took advantage of their right to vote and, and say that it was illegitimate, even illegal. And he is promising now to, to go to court to, to try to prove that in a, in a, in a couple states where he thinks that will, that will make a difference. Um, you say that, that this, this cleave between us as Americans is wider than it has been in the past. I, I, I think one sign of that is this, this, undermining of institutions like voting and the willingness of elected officials to indulge that, which, of course, then gives cover to other Americans to do it. It makes it seem it makes it seem OK. I want to give you a chance to talk just about what we're seeing now and how extraordinary that is to see the chief executive of our nation lean full force into the undermining of, of that institution. Yes, it's both extraordinarily and extraordinarily frightening, in my view. Um, you know, I think <laughs> you have to start with the fact that four years ago, Donald Trump won three states that flipped him from 260 electoral votes to 306. And those 46 electoral votes, as you know, include your state, Michigan, as well as Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. He won those three states by combined about 77,000 votes. At present, Joe Biden's margins in those three states, and they're growing, particularly in Pennsylvania, is about three times that, about 225,000 votes, and will probably end up being about 300,000 votes. In other words, net, not the same exact in every state, a little closer in Wisconsin, but his margins combined in those three upper Midwest states or Rust Belt states will be about four times Trump's margin, right? He also, of course, is indisputably the national popular vote winner. Four years ago, however, on election night, with margins one-fourth that size, with ballots not fully counted to the percentage and degree that they are now, one week and a day later, and despite the fact that everybody knew at that point he was going to lose the national popular vote by somewhere between two and three million votes, all the networks called the election for Donald Trump shortly after midnight on November, whatever it was, 5th or 6th, mm -hmm. 2016. And I did not hear a single conservative or Republican official or commentator or media member complain about the media doesn't call the election. Not a single one of them said, hold on a second, 
these 50 states plus the District of Columbia have not certified with their respective secretaries of state the final ballot totals, and these states are very close. And despite the fact that Trump was behind by 2% nationally, they called the election for him. Now, fast forward four years later, and again, as I pointed out, despite losing by maybe twice the margin this time nationally, four times the margin in those three kings, three swing states, we see a complete shifting of the goalposts here, right? A complete 180 by the very same officials who championed and applauded or at least went silent about the media calling the election, now trying to create a crisis and a sense of, norms being shattered and rules being broken, even though they're applying the exact same rules and gave Trump four and a half days, the media, before they called an election that Biden's going to win by a wider margin than he did in both the swing states and certainly in the national popular vote. Mm. This is exactly the kind of norm destruction we saw, for example, with all the Republicans who came out in late 2016 saying we do not confirm Supreme Court justices in the last year of the presidency. We should give the voters an opportunity to speak to this issue. And then confirming Amy Coney Berry with, with whatever, two or three weeks before the 2020 election. There's essentially heads I win, tails you lose philosophy by one party in coalition. I'm sorry to say. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying the Democrats are always right and the liberals are always right, but it's one party and one coalition and its media apologists and defenders who continually move the goalposts when it suits, their, it suits their case. And what we're seeing is asymmetrical warfare, and the only side that seems to recognize this asymmetrical warfare is the right, and the left better wake up, because if they fail to do so, they're going to continue to fight a war uh, where, to borrow from the late, now late Sean Connery's famous line in The Untouchables, they're bringing a knife to a gunfight. Hmm. Uh, you know, it does, it does seem as though the, the exercise of power for its own sake and for its own preservation has sort of taken place at the core of Republican politics. And that's not to say that they don't have their own beliefs or their own ideologies, but that the thing that they agree on uh, universally is that when they have power to do something, they'll do it. And there is no other there is no other consideration that can trump that. I mean, the, the, the fight over these Supreme Court seats, I think, is, is one example of that. But there are lots of places where uh, the use of uh, double standards, uh, the use of false equivalencies uh, becomes cover for just the, the sort of brutal exercise of, of power uh, because you have it. And, and, and I wonder if that is also different i mean is that is that a an outlier among uh political parties in our in our history that that we haven't seen um uh, too too often and and does that does that again raise the temperature uh, of this to to the the crisis level that you're talking about well i mean we had we've had earlier instances of the naked use of power, the Republican Party in the late 19th century, then the more progressive party, right, mm -hmm. the Northern Party, mm -hmm. when the Southerners, of course, uh, were all Democrats, used its power to expand statehood and admit whatever it was, eight or nine states within a decade in the late uh, 1800s, um, you know, splitting states like the Dakotas, so there'd be two extra senators and so forth for the Republican Party. So, uh, the you know all the complaining about packing the court or giving D.C. where I live or Puerto Rico statehood, um, you know it's kind of fantastical to hear Republicans decry moves to do that when of course their party historically did exactly that 
130 years ago, though you could argue they did it in the defense of more progressive values than they're advocating for today. But yes, I mean, I think the clear story here is, with a few notable exceptions, maybe Harry Reid's destruction of the filibuster, is that when it comes to changing the rules, when it comes to changing the norms, when it comes to changing the expectations, the Republicans are happy to do it. We've seen this with the rise in the number of filibusters. When Democrats are in the White House and the Republicans capture the Senate, the filibusters go up dramatically. We've seen this with the withholding of justices and judges from the bench. In the last two years of Obama's administration, he got no Supreme Court appointee, mm-hmm. Merrick Garland. He got only one, I believe, Court of Appeals appoint, appointment in the last two years at the appellate level. And something on the order of only 20 percent of his trial court justices even got a hearing. That is a record for a two-year period of judicial appointments that didn't even give a hearing. So here we have a situation where Barack Obama, who not only won two elections, but he won those elections with absolute majorities above 50 percent and got, in theory, eight years of a presidency, right? The last two years, judicially speaking, were essentially taken from him, put put on ice, and then Donald Trump, despite losing the national popular vote, got those two years. So one man won two national popular vote majorities and got six years of judicial appointments. And one man came in second in the national popular vote and a narrow electoral college win, and he got six years of appointments, including the two redistributed from Obama in his last two years over to Trump. Right. And Trump has the goal to stand on the national stage and say, I can't believe Obama left all these vacancies is because of Obama's failure that he was too lazy to, to fill these judicial appointments when, in fact, Mitch McConnell held them up. So there's something fundamentally wrong with a democracy when one man wins two elections with a majority of the popular vote and one man comes in second in one election and they both get six years of judicial appointment. Mm. That is inherently asymmetrical and fundamentally wrong. Yeah. And again, Democrats got to stop bringing a knife to the gunfight here. Mm. Uh, I'm talking with Thomas Schaller. He's a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, an author and former political columnist for the Baltimore Sun. We're talking about this incredible division that exists right now in our country uh, between right and left, red and blue, however you want to characterize it, and whether it has reached the point of a quote-unquote soft civil war? Are we at an impasse where the regular political process, the regular campaigning and negotiating that takes place uh, over policy isn't working because you have two sides who are fundamentally in different places? Uh, If that's true, what does that mean? Uh, how do you see these divisions playing out in your own life? Do they play out in your community? Do they play out in your family? Uh, and do you think that Joe Biden, who is now president-elect of the United States, will he be able to bring people together across that divide? What, would he, what could he do that would entice Uh, people who voted for Donald Trump, the current president of the United States, to follow him and to believe that the problems that we have can be solved across political lines. Uh, Are you feeling more hopeful or more fearful since the announcement of Biden's apparent win over the weekend and since last week's presidential election? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Tom, before we get to our listeners uh, I want to ask you about not about uh, Republican officials and leaders, but the voters who support uh, Donald Trump and other Republican figures and the role that fear 
is playing in their participation uh, in these things. That that the 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 double standards, the the raw exercise of power for its own sake, is appealing to those voters uh, ultimately because they're afraid uh, of the change that's happening in this country, the demographic change. Uh, they're afraid of losing uh, something, losing economic security, uh, losing political security. Uh, talk about that relationship between these things that we see Republican officials doing and uh, the, the fear that I think is motivating the people who are supporting it. Well, I think it all boils down like most policy issues. You pick me a policy issue and I'll boil it down to how the underlying driver is race. It, it just is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would encourage your your listeners to read uh, the book about the 2016 election that I have assigned in my current presidential elections class, which is Identity Crisis by John Sides mm -hmm. and Lynn Vavrick and Michael Tesler. I mean, they make it very clear that in the 2016 election, the sort of three competing explanations for the rise of Trump's white populism, was it either economic anxiety, was it sexism, or was it racism, that racism was the strongest loading factor. And in fact, the economic anxiety factor was essentially neutral. And where they did see economic anxiety driving it, they found that it was a racialized economic anxiety mm -hmm. because of, as you pointed out, group threat, the notion that whites are losing their status, that they're having to compete in a world where women and minorities are now at the table, and that is threatening to them. And I can understand why it is, but if you, you either believe it in egalitarian America or you believed in a pinched America where only white men are allowed to compete for resources and for jobs and for status. And uh, if you can't compete in that environment, you feel threatened. Uh, I'm a white man. I don't feel threatened. Uh, I, you know, I teach in a university, which is, of course, an unusual setting, but I've had three female chairs. I've had uh, two female uh, associate deans, including a black female dean. We have an African-American president, one of the most famous African-American. Yeah, Freeman Hrabowski, sure. Yeah. Freeman Hrabowski, right? Uh, you know, who was friends with the little girls who were bombed in the church bombing in mm -hmm. Birmingham, Alabama in mm -hmm. 1964, right? There's a documentary by Spike Lee all about that, right? Uh, so I've had minority bosses and women bosses. I'm, I, I do part-time consulting for Latino decisions. I'm the only white academic on the staff. I'm the affirmative action hire. So you either adapt to this environment and you accept that this is what the future of the country is, or you become uh, rebel against it. You, you, you support revanchist movements that want to make America great again. Remember, the, the operative word in MAGA is again. It implies that America was better before when essentially whites and men did not have to compete in a full field of uh, competition against any you know sort of people who wanted to compete for jobs and education and spots at universities and so forth. They want an essentially affirmative action for white men. And that's just simply wrong, and that's not where we're headed as a country, and you either accept it and move forward or you fight to try to bring the country like somehow and put it in a time machine and fly back to 1940, which is simply impossible. So uh, there's no question that racial animus and racial anxiety and group threat, as it's called uh, by political scientists, is, is driving most of this. That and a heavy dose of authoritarianism, which was the single biggest predictor of Trump's support within the 2016 Republican primary. People who want strong control, limited uh, democratic norms and so forth and like a strong man leader i mean that's the people who are gravitating toward him and that's what creates this fear and that's by the way this creates this 
ignorance. I mean, I'm looking at a, 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 an article that I've selected for our post-election week, and the uh, exit polls show that four in five Trump supporters say that the virus is at least somewhat under control. Mm-hmm. We had a million people contract the virus in the past week alone, mm-hmm. one out of every 10 of 10 million. This is a president who promised we have 15 cases and we'll be down to zero soon. We're at 10 million. So you're living in a world where people who are watching Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and listening to Rush Limbaugh and going down right-wing rabbit holes on the Internet all day have no concept of what's going on in our country. And the states that are getting it the worst right now, North Dakota, South Dakota, are some of the reddest states in the union. Mm -hmm. All the hospitals in South Dakota are filled every single bed as I speak to you today, Stephen, and they still don't care. They still think it's under control. Why? Because the president told them it's under control. A president, who, by the way, hasn't had a briefing on COVID in three months, hasn't had a national security briefing since October, and simply has stopped presidenting. He's not even leading the country right now. He doesn't have any public events. He golfs and watches TV and tweets. The country has zero leadership right now, and they don't care. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Tom Schaller, and we're going to get to your comments. Billy in Gross Point Park, Albert in Detroit, Heather in Ferndale. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone's call, and tell us what you think of the idea that we are headed for or already in a, quote, soft civil war in the United States. Stay with us. For more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Tom Schaller, a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, an author and former political columnist for the Baltimore Sun. We're talking about all of the division that surrounds us right now, all of the division that completely envelops our political discussions and uh, the political process right now. Are we at the point of being essentially at a the, uh, civil war, a soft civil war of sorts, where we cannot resolve our problems through the regular political process. Uh, We want to hear from you this hour as well. What do you think about where we are as a country now that we are past the 2020 presidential election, but we certainly aren't past the arguments over what happened in that election? You've got a president of the United States uh, saying that the only way you can interpret the results as a loss for him is if you count Cheated votes, so votes that should not be counted. Uh, You also have now a president-elect who is trying to get through the transition process, trying to start building an administration that he says will bring people together. Is that even possible right now, given the fundamental differences between us? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we will try to work them into the conversation here. Let's start with Heather in Ferndale. Heather, welcome to the show. Yes, good evening. Um, I, I actually was coming into this in one direction and then was listening to the... I think fault lines are exacerbated by economic distress. Mm-hmm. What Before the last section where he was just speaking, I was my thinking is that it... Biden needs to be laser focused on policies that are actually going to help people 
in distress where they are. With Obama, he came in, there was the financial crisis. He kind of stabilized markets. He stabilized our financial institutions. And then he went right into health care. And the results from that were never, I mean, they weren't evident in 2020 when he got absolutely wiped out in, in the Congress. And I think that, um, and, and I'm not faulting him for that. I mean, we can't always know how things are going to play out. But I do think that, you know, if Biden, as I say, can stay really focused on what is impacting people, mm. I mean, these people in rural communities are still, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, addiction problem that they have. Sure. And um, and now COVID. And I do think that that's going to I mean, they've been denying it all along because it hasn't really impacted them. But now it is severely. And so I think if he if he stays laser focused on that, that will I'm not saying it will do it all. And clearly we have a problem with racism in this country. But as I say, I do think that all of those things double up more to the surface when there's. It's like any civil war. I mean, the civil war in Syria started because, you know, there was tremendous drought and people were starving. And so, um, you know, I yeah. think... I, uh, Heather, I, I, I absolutely uh, appreciate the call and the, and the insight there. And, and, and Tom, before I get you to answer, I want to I wanna just sort of reinforce what she's saying here and how, how it intersects with what you have been talking about. Um, the despite the the bigotry that still drives so much of decision making and fear uh, in this country, you do have uh, an entire class of people who are struggling and who are uh, falling behind economically in a way that they can't they can't dig out themselves that they have or they feel they have no, no control over. And I guess one of the questions, and this is Heather's question, of course, is what are the things that that uh, a President Biden could do to kind of alleviate that stress to be able to get them to think uh, differently about about other things? In other words, you know, if somebody's hungry, uh, you can't really talk to them about anything until they are not hungry. If somebody doesn't have economic security, uh, it's really hard to talk about demographic change and why that's a good thing uh, because they are they are worried about themselves and that's not to downplay uh, the effect of racism and and historical inequality uh, on this conversation but to say that there are other things that are driving this as well and uh, the, the task for for the new president maybe is to is to drill down on those yeah, maybe, but if we want to connect race to socioeconomic welfare and high indicators of social malady, whether it's health or suicide rates or drug addiction, I would gently remind you and your readers that we've been here before. Mm-hmm. Fifty years ago, mm-hmm. when heroin was decimating black communities, when the out-of-wedlock birth rate was 29% for African Americans, when poverty and destitution and suicide rates we're running through the roof in urban America. White America's response, led by Pat Moynihan, the senator, future senator from New York, was to criminalize all of that. Commission, yeah. Was to criminalize all that and white people to move to the suburbs and to tell African Americans they needed to change their value set. Now that a white America, when out of wedlock births are higher than that, 
higher than 29%, and we have a massive opioid addiction in the form of prescription drugs and people who get addicted to that and then move on to opioids or move on to methamphetamines. And when rural counties are seeing declining population bases and hospitals moving out of there and jobs and so forth, and people went from decent, you know, sort of middle-class blue-collar jobs to now working in pizza shops and, you know, chicken wing shops, the response is America has to stop everything. The globe on global warming has to stop and pay attention to the declining, the rising poverty and the declining health indicators for white America. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do the latter, but if we responded to white rural America the same way we did to black urban America 50 years ago, Barack Obama would have commissioned his attorney general or somebody to write a report telling white Americans that they need to get their act together and stay married and raise their kids properly and change their values. And so if you want to connect racism to problems of social maladies and indicators, there's a good example of how we've responded to two almost identical crises. One was to run from it and build houses in the suburbs and gut the cities of their jobs and their economic backbone and tell African-Americans, figure it out. And the other is to stop the entire country for four years with a racist president who says we need to have the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN do story after story after story of hillbilly elegy. What's the matter with white rural America and how can the rest of the country come to a grinding halt until we listen to and solve their problems? And I'm not trying to be unsympathetic to those problems. They're very real. But let's remember our history. It's but if a very two-sided history and a very racialized history. But if you're trying to move past that, if you're trying to move past this stalemate and, and get everybody to, to be able to you know, respect the political process that we have to, to solve problems and not fear each other, which I think, uh, and in particular, have white America deal with its fear of black America and the ascendance of, of black America. Don't you have to deal with those things? And don't you have to alleviate uh, the, the, some of the problems that, that, that allow Republican officials to exploit the, the, the differences in those difficulties to keep them at odds with with black America. I guess so. But I'm going to bring a gun to a gunfight, if you don't mind, Steve, and, <laughs> and remind people of this as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I'm not trying to pick on white rural America, but they've been overrepresented from the founding of the Constitution and still are today. They're overrepresented in the Senate with sw- smaller white rural states that get two senators in Wyoming. Whereas California gets two senators for 40 million people. Wyoming has 600, 700,000 people. They've been overrepresented until the 1960s in the state legislatures, until the courts overruled the old county system where one county would get a state senator and one city would get a state senator. It's insane, right? So white rural America has been overrepresented for 230 years. They've had disproportionate power. They still wield disproportionate power in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And because the Electoral College is based on the Senate representation, the House representation, they're overrepresented in the, in the presidency as well, which is why... The last two Republican presidents to enter office entered despite losing the popular vote because they got the extra electors in the smaller states. So they have been overrepresented and overheard for 230 years and even the last 20 years since since Bush v. Gore. And they've been voting against their own interests. They've been voting for politicians to deregulate, to move jobs overseas, to cut taxes for wealthy people. And now they're coming to the Democrats and Joe Biden and saying, please listen to us and fix it. I'm sorry if I sound a little bit tired of these complaints and have a little bit less patience, perhaps, and a little bit less empathy. But it's very hard when people run to the polls and vote for guns and abortion and essentially destroy the social safety welfare net and then complain about their declining health fortunes as they're finding their kids standing in front of a shopping cart with their baby slumped over in an aisle from opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, again, uh, those are tough words, and I'm yeah. sure some of your no, they are. Be, like, what kind of liberal is this? But if you want to diagnose a problem, if you want to fix the problem, you have to start by diagnosing it. And the fact of the matter is, in a country where Joe Biden has carried only 500 counties, and those 500 counties account for 70 percent of the GDP of this country, they're the fastest growing and economically growing states and counties in those states. And the other 2,500 counties that Trump has carried both times account for 30 percent of the GDP. We have a country of makers. It's blue America. And we have a country of takers. It's red America. And red America does not want to hear that. And they certainly don't want to be told that by blue America. But somebody needs to tell them. Just the same way we told African Americans, clean up your values, clean up your act, clean up your families, clean up your communities 50 years ago. Mm. Uh, I want to get one more call uh, into the conversation here. Albert in Detroit. Albert, welcome to the show. Hello, Stephen. Um, Yeah, so I would say that there's this focus. I think it's wrong-headed that because somehow Biden is like Obama's guy and he's not Trump and he has Harris for his VP, he must be good for the people. But I think the single best indicator of what a president will do once put in office historically is to look at the money. Who is funding them? It's the financial service industry. It's Wall Street. It's the free traders. It's the multinationals. That's who's funding them. That who, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, if he's going to have to strike a trade bill and he can either do what's right for the multinationals or he can do what's right for the UAW, he's going to do what's right for the multinationals. And to what your, your, your guest said about, you know, sort of the Steve Bannon sort of economic nationalism and how there's racism underlying it, mm-hmm. I agree. That's probably the main motive. You, know, you, you want to get these people out there, the racism's getting it out there. Mm-hmm. But I think you saw, you know, a lot of people, I'm a Sanders to Trump voter. A lot of people voted for that same reason because we've watched these jobs get sent overseas and we've watched so, you know so that, that's what i believe so you are a sanders to trump voter in other words you supported bernie sanders in the primary and then voted for donald trump in the general correct and you did that in 16 or 20 or both Oh, in, in, in 2020, in 16, I believe I voted for Bernie in the primary, then I voted independent because I didn't really buy into Trump's, but then I realized that voting independent is kind of a waste of time. Yeah, that's yeah. so can, fascinating. Can I, can I ask the listener a question? Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Name me one policy that Trump has proposed or supported that has helped white rural Americans. Go. That has helped white rural America? Mm-hmm. Um Shoot, I don't live in, I live here in Detroit. Um, <laughs> that's not I, why I, you voted I would have yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly. it. But but what was it, Albert? What was it that that Donald Trump promised or did or said that earned your vote? Um. Yeah. So the biggest thing for me was the trade deals, where you know he's saying, look, you know, these Biden has done what's best for the multinational corporations. It's laid out very well by Tom Ferguson and his uh, his mm-hmm. fantastic work, um, as I'm sure the professor knows. He's just going to do what's right for the corporations. Trump just kind of cut to it. He said, I'm not going to do, and, and I, I, I totally oppose mandatory masks, mandatory vaccinations, mandatory test and trace. I think they're trying to put in place a social credit system like they did in China. So really, I'm not represented by either party. So hopefully one day we'll have Boy, that's a, <laughs> Albert, I'm really glad you called. I'm fascinated by your thinking here. I don't, I don't necessarily follow it. I think uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I, uh, but I do think it reflects the frustration that some people feel with the, with the choices that, uh, that that we have, and and there's a lot of people uh, who are attracted to this kind of faux populist message that uh, that the president, uh, the current president, has has been been pushing. Uh, Tom, I'll, I'll give you the last word after 
after Albert's call here. Well, Obama was criticized for bailing out Detroit, where Albert lives. Right. Uh, but his bailouts for farmers in places like northern Michigan and northern, and northern Wisconsin is twice the size of that, $53 billion. If that's winning a trade war, uh, then, you know, the Patriots lost that Super Bowl to the Atlanta Falcons, right? Because <laughs> the suicide rate and the farm closure rates in northern Wisconsin are through the roof since Trump took office because yeah. the same president said trade wars are easy to win. I'm the great deal maker. Couldn't make a good deal and realizes now after having to bail out the industries that he destroyed uh, that he did harm to these areas. Now, they still voted God's gun and American flag and Lee Greenwood for Donald Trump. But again, they voted for their own demise and, uh, I'm told I need to listen more, and, and I'm sorry if I sound really frustrated and I sound mm-hmm. very polemical on the phone here, uh, but I'm just being honest now. I'm bringing a gun to a gunfight from this point forward, and people need to hear the truth about these policies. Donald Trump's tax cut, which was already in the works before he took office, mm-hmm. the congressional bill, all he did was sign it, didn't help a single person that voted for him who made under $50,000 a year. That's just a fact. Okay, Tom Schaller. Professor of Political Science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. It was really, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. Great to be here, Steve. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at how a fringe conspiracy theory has gained real momentum and prominence in 2020. We are going to examine QAnon next. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I want to slightly shift gears here and talk about a concerning voter block in this nation that has been silently growing for years now. And here in 2020, when the nation is more divided than ever, it's a population that we need to be paying a little more attention to. The group in question are supporters of QAnon, Americans who believe in a far-right conspiracy theory that says that the Democratic Party is made up of Satanists and pedophiles, among other things. We're going to talk more about it all and how two QAnon believers just got elected to the U.S. Congress. Our next guest has been following this group's movement from the fringe into the mainstream. Caitlin Tiffany is a writer at The Atlantic who has been following QAnon closely for some time now. She recently wrote an article called QAnon is Winning. Caitlin Tiffany, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Um, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So for people who don't know about QAnon, give us a brief refresher of the origins of it and what this conspiracy theory proposes. Sure. Um, I think a lot of people consider the early phase of QAnon to be the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. Um, they aren't directly tied, but it's a lot of similar ideas. Um, and that was, you know, the conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton was operating a child trafficking ring out of the basement of a pizza place in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. um, which turned out not to have a basement. But um, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. they didn't even have a basement. <laughs> yeah. So after the, after that, that, I think a lot of people thought that, you know, this was obviously proved wrong. This man showed up with a gun and there was nothing to be found. But um, 
then people kind of went back to the the drawing board. And I think QAnon, as we know, it really started on 4chan. Um, there's this sort of mysterious figure. His name is Q, which is supposed to be a reference to his security clearance level. Um, so he's like very high up in the military. who then posting these really cryptic messages, basically predicting um, a coming storm, a coming like clearance of the deep state. Um, Trump is like a light bringer. He has um, God behind him. It's a holy war. Um, so that started on 4chan, moved to 8chan, which was which doesn't exist anymore. Um, now it's on 8kun, which is like the same thing, basically. But um, I guess I didn't really cover QAnon back when it was on like the weird um, forums. Mm-hmm. My interest in QAnon started when it moved on to mainstream platforms. So that would be like Reddit, YouTube. Um, there was a huge QAnon presence on Twitter, and there still is to some degree a huge QAnon presence on Facebook. And it, like just over the summer, they started clearing out those Facebook groups, which had millions of people in them. Mm. Um, and then also a sizable QAnon presence on Instagram, um, which is where I became particularly interested in it because it was being promoted by people who clearly hadn't followed the the weird cryptic messages. They weren't really interested in decoding things. They just kind of took the the parts of the theory that they found interesting, repackaged them, and presented them to their followers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's and, like where it gets scary. <laughs> and social media is not the only place that this is spreading. You write that quote according to a recent assessment by Media Matters: ninety-seven current or former congressional candidates have embraced QAnon, including twenty-seven who were on the ballot last Tuesday, and two of them were elected to go to Congress. Tell, tell us about these these two new reps. Yeah, so there's two. Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is the better known. Um, she is a, a representative from Georgia, and um, she has been very open about her beliefs in QAnon. She gave a full interview to The New Yorker about it. Um, she ran uncontested her... Democratic opponent dropped out in September. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also been, I think, pretty critical in the um, the Stop the Steal movement on Twitter. She posted like something like 15 times in 12 hours about mm. how uh, the election was being stolen. And I guess like this is how I I, I think we should be thinking about QAnon now. Um, she doesn't strike me as someone who's really spending that much time on 8chan either, but but QAnon has landed on this narrative of the stolen election, which is also being promoted by like well-known mainstream right-wing political figures. Like Donald Trump Jr. Um, is lending credence. Well, he's promoting it. Um, several other Republicans in Congress have lent credence to this theory that the election has been stolen, and that's where the QAnon is going with it now, because... Q himself has not posted in something like 10, eight, nine days. Um, so they basically had to settle on their own story. And there was a lot of confusion on election day. It was like, we haven't heard from him. Is Trump still going to win every state and flip California? Um, or is he going to pretend to let Biden lose just so he can expose voter fraud? And then as soon as they started getting this messaging, stop the steal, Patriots hold the line. Um, they really went with it. And now I would say 
most of them, I mean, some people have broken faith, but most of what I'm seeing is still just, um, we know we know that this is on purpose. We know that Trump is, is has a plan and he's going to expose the fraud. So I, I feel like we're seeing, now that we have a QAnon supporter in Congress who's promoting these ideas, we're just seeing this real blurring um, where conspiracy thinking on the right and QAnon are becoming almost synonymous in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah you write that QAnon is, uh, is bigger than Trump. Uh, talk about why that's true and, and explain why you don't think uh, these conspiracy theories will die out when the Trump presidency ends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think conspiracy thinking in general is super flexible and it easily incorporates information that would seem to disprove it. Um, you know, I've also covered for a long time the conspiracy theory that uh, two members of One Direction are secretly in love and one of them has a fake child. That child is four years old. It doesn't matter. People will find like reasons to believe that, that, that the story is holding together. But I think the most upsetting thing about QAnon going forward is that even if somehow, um, you know, even if they eventually get over the election narrative, even if they don't use that to undermine Joe Biden's presidency for the next four years, like previous conspiracy theorists did with birtherism and Barack Obama, um, QAnon supporters are extremely anti-science, anti-media, anti-fact. And we're looking at another year of the pandemic and trying to um, convince people to take a vaccine that needs to be taken by a majority of the population to be effective. I think they will be extremely destructive um, with that effort. We saw a lot of QAnon people protesting the, um, you know, the shutdowns earlier this year. As soon as the election is over, if they think it's over, they'll just go back to that. Hmm. So, so often when you see people who represent sort of extreme ideologies or ideas elected to public office, the, the, the institutional sort of norms of that office or the institutional pressures of that office kind of tamp down uh, on, on that extremism. Uh, do you think that will happen with these members of Congress who were elected on on QAnon ideas, uh, but now are joining a Congress where the, the work is is really about uh, two pretty mainstream parties who who control uh, the entire institution. Um, I certainly think they'll be cagey about talking to journalists about it because they know how it comes off. But um, you know, Donald Trump, after he took office, continued tweeting that. Barack Obama had wiretapped his home and that Hillary Clinton had potentially ordered Jeffrey Epstein to be murdered. Like if the offices of the presidency of the United States didn't do anything to, um, to tamp that down. And, and these people are clearly enamored of Trump and emboldened by him. I don't, I don't see why, um, why it would affect their, their beliefs at all to, to be in office. Mm. Uh, and uh, what does the election of Biden add to this Q narrative, what's their what's their I guess reaction to him in in particular? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, they um, I have seen plenty of references to him. I like hesitate to say this even, but like to him being the quote unquote like pedophile in chief. Like they just mm. think Demo- Democrats are pedophiles. Um, Joe Biden's not going to do anything to quote unquote save the children. 
Um, and, and what's more, they don't think that he'll be president. Um, they think the election was stolen, but Trump is deliberately allowing it to get to this point so that we can all become awakened to the extent of the deep state and to the deceptions of the, of the media. Mm. So um, I don't know how much they even think about him, really. I think <laughs> they think he'll just fade out. Mm. Uh, and, and how serious do you think the implications of voting block could be in future elections? Uh, is this the beginning of that that belief system, that ideology being part of mainstream politics and 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 public officialdom? Uh, two two members are going to to Congress. Are we going to see more in the future? Um, sure. I mean, I think it's kind of hard to predict, but I know. Um you know, in the aftermath of the election, a lot of the discussion was about how could the polls be wrong again. And of some of the like preliminary information about that was that people who are low trust, who don't trust, um, you know, politics, who don't trust outsiders, who don't trust media will not respond to polls. Um, so I think that there, that it will be difficult to see how much impact this not community, but network of conspiracy theorists will have. Um, I, I guess like it is encouraging that there is more um, expertise in covering misinformation and covering conspiracy thinking in journalism right now. But at the same time, like these these are groups that are that are taking effort now to um, to hide what they're doing, hide what they're thinking, move on to alt platforms um, where there's less. Um, inspection of what they're saying, and um, and and yeah, I I think conspiracy thinking has been rewarded by the current president, um, and there's no reason for people to think that it would be damaging to their careers. I was actually um, just reading that I live in South Brooklyn. Um, apparently, yesterday, uh, the neighborhood of Coney Island elected a QAnon supporter to state assembly. So. <laughs> um, I, I, I think we'll see more and more, especially in the state legislatures. They know, um, yeah, I think probably seven or eight QAnon supporters have been elected to the state to state legislatures this year. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really that's really fascinating. Okay, Caitlin Tiffany, writer at the Atlantic, who's been following QAnon pretty closely for some time, and recently wrote an article called "QAnon Is Winning." It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for coming by. Great. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Have a good one. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. Be sure to come back tomorrow when we are going to take a look at the constitutional implications of President Trump's clinging to power. He is flailing around saying he is going to do everything he can to overturn the apparent results of the election in 2020. But what are the institutions that cabin that flailing. What is going to happen that President Trump maybe has no control over? We'll talk about it all tomorrow. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.